Hey, welcome to the 68th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated team writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a writer for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is a brand new song from MC Whiteout, Football for a Buck, in conjunction with my recently released book of the same name. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today starts with a story, a really freaking great story. I was reading the recent issue of Sports Illustrated when I stumbled upon a piece about Baltimore first baseman Chris Davis, headlined Crushed Davis. And man, it was empathetic and it was emotional and it was detailed. So I decided to grab Stephanie Epstein, the magazine's staff writer, and have her talk about approaching a subject when he's at his absolute lowest and getting him to open up. So let's talk about it right now on Two Writers, Slinging the Egg. All right, Stephanie, first of all, thank you for doing this. Much appreciate it. Uh, thank you for, thanks for having me. Yeah, you seemed, uh, you seemed surprised when I asked. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Why is that? I don't know. I mean, you work at SI and you sort of look at the masthead and you consider yourself lucky when, I mean, I don't know if you felt this way, but at least I consider myself lucky when they let me do anything, so. So it's just funny to consider myself as a person someone might ask questions of. I two days ago was, you know, pelting every writer I could find with questions. So it's very interesting because, um, so how Stephanie, how old are you? Are you are you even thirty yet? Yeah, I just turned thirty. I remember like it's kind of weird. Like you you come up and you don't see yourself a certain way. Like you know you're a writer at Sports Illustrated. That's a big job, and you're covering baseball, and that's a big job. But like I remember being sort of younger at SI and being surrounded by, you know, William Nax and Steve Russian and Riley and all those people and just feeling like I didn't really belong in the same breath. For Is sure. that how you oh, feel yeah. to a certain degree? Yeah. Especially I started as a reporter there, which, you know, was basically just a nice word for fact checker. So mm -hmm. to be in that yeah. position with those guys and then to be promoted from within might feel different than if I had come in sort yeah, of on totally any different. kind of level with those people. The, the line felt so, so strong and still sort of does, even if it's, I'm not sure how much of it's in my head, but it still feels, I still feel far away. Yeah. I, I think I've said that, talked about this on this podcast before. So I, I came along in 90, I started at SI in 96 and I was the same as you. I was a reporter. And when I got promoted, they definitely don't, don't do this anymore. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but they would fly in every staff and senior writer from all over the country for a state of Sports Illustrated. And you were, You'd sit in a room as like the editors of a magazine talk to all the writers. And it was almost embarrassing. Like you knew you didn't belong there because there were 30 people you had read throughout your childhood surrounding you in a room. How am I in the same room as like Frank DeFord? That's a joke. Yeah. That know? sounds like combination so, dream slash nightmare. Like incredible. Yeah, and then dream. you think, oh my God. Oh my God. Someone's going to look over yeah. here and kick me out. Yeah, exactly. Or tell me to get coffee or something. So, uh, right. yeah. Well, well, you definitely belong, and uh, your writing is great. It's funny for someone who has such a uh, you know a great way of writing, and you have a high profile job. And I'm staring at your piece in Sports Illustrated. It's funny how the only things I can find about you online, especially on YouTube, are vi rowing videos from Trinity oh. College. Otherwise, there's not that much of Stephanie out there yet. So, uh, so um, you did this story. I reached out to you yesterday because mm -hmm. I read this story a day before yesterday, and I was like, man, this is such freaking good. Story. It's in the new issue of Sports Illustrated. 
Uh, you told me a longer version is going to be posted online uh, the day this podcast actually comes out. It's called Crush Davis, and it's about Chris Davis. The, the subhead is the Orioles' two-time home run king, has the worst bat in baseball, and an outside shot at turning in the worst season in history. But that won't stop Chris Davis from taking his cuts. I'm just going to read your lead real quick, which is um, <laughs> baseball. I don't mean to embarrass you. Baseball's shortest sure. walk feels like it's longest. As Chris Davis trudges the 70 feet from home plate to the dugout, he has plenty of time to consider the people he has just let down. There's fellow Orioles, of course, who greet him with pats on the backside that feel more like condolences and encouragement, and the coaches who sat on buckets to flip him thousands of balls over the years, and his father, who coached him harder than anyone else, and the organization that writes his paychecks and strings his likeness up on lampposts and sells dolls featuring grotesquely oversized rep representations of his head, and his wife, who gave up her dream job without complaint when he got traded, and his three kids, who seem to have grown two inches every time he returns from a 10-game road trip. Um... Oh, and then your Davis, who has struck out 178 times through September 13, knows baseball's walk of shame better than just about any everyone else in the majors. But he forces himself to keep his head up so pitchers can't see how demoralized he is. In doing so, he stares into a sea of fans at Camden Yards who tell him something he already knows, something that brings him to tears at his kitchen table. He sucks. That's a great lead. Like, great. Thank you. It's so freaking good. It's really good. And I've read a lot about Chris Davis. I wrote a column about Chris Davis. This is far superior to anything I've written on him. I always hated assignments like this, and I still do, because you're going to profile someone who's terrible, knows he's terrible, certainly doesn't want to talk about being terrible. No one around him wants to bury him because they all feel bad for him. How did you approach this one? How did you come up with the idea? Why did you do it? It's funny. I actually, I, I wouldn't say I feel the opposite way, but in this case, I was sort of, excited to do it um i thought i just have all i'm always a little bit more interested i think in failure than success maybe because mm -hmm. sometimes it feels like writing is a little bit like you know they always talk about you succeed three out of ten times and you're successful whatever sometimes writing feels that way too that you it's yeah. a lot of you know blowing the interview and then writing the wrong sentence and whatever until something goes right whatever it is i think that that's really interesting so when i started to see around the all-star break that he had a real chance at turning in the worst season of all time i thought God, that sounds awful. Like, that just sounds awful. And I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was talking to Chris Carter in front of his locker, and this was not that long before he got released by the Yankees. And I walked away and somebody said, did you ask Chris Carter why he sucks? And I thought, no, like, what an awful thing to say. He doesn't want to be bad at this job. I mean, I watched the Browns kicker, the Zane Gonzalez or whatever, blow that game. And like that, I understand why fans are mad at him, but he doesn't want that either. And so I, I sort of thought, I, I just wonder the, the level of, of strength, I guess, a different kind than we're used to, that it takes, especially in baseball, to do this every day. And they don't get time off, and you just wake up in the morning, and you think, like, great, I guess I'll go fail today. So when the Orioles were in, in I live in New York, so when the Orioles were in town in the end of July, I guess, I approached him uh, the day, I guess I got him sort of the evening before I talked to him and I said, can I just get 90 seconds with you tomorrow? Because he doesn't spend a lot of time in the clubhouse during open clubhouse hours for for uh, understandable reasons these days. And the next day yeah. I said, I just, <clears throat> you know, I get the sense that you're a guy who takes a lot of pride in his job. And I just, uh, I wonder what the what this year has been like for you. I think that people could learn a lot from watching you handle adversity. If you ever feel like you want to talk about what you're going through. Um, I would love to talk to you about it. And he said, to, to my amazement, I thought for sure he would say no. He said, thank you. I think that's a great idea. Thanks for giving me a chance to tell my side of it.
So uh, a couple weeks later, I went down to Baltimore and we sat there for an hour and a half and talked about how it is really unpleasant to be bad at your job. I mean, I think it just we we don't see that side of it that often, I think. And so when someone is willing to discuss, it's so much more relatable. More people have struggled than have been the best in the world and made one hundred sixty one million dollars at something. So when you. When you went up to him at, at Yankee Stadium, so you had, it's not like at that point you would pitch the story to an editor, correct? You're just feeling had, it out or did you? I had, well, I had pitched it because I didn't want him to agree to something this personal without the okay for my bosses. Okay. So he says yes in Yankee Stadium. And then do you say, okay, I'll, like, do you, is your idea I'll interview him now at Yankee Stadium? How did it transition to Baltimore? No, I actively didn't want to. And I said that too. I said, I don't, I don't want to talk to you about this right now because I want you to think about it because I didn't want, I don't want to get there and have him give me sort of yes or no one word answers. Like there's no point in doing it that way. So mm-hmm. I wanted him to be sure that he wanted to do this. Um, so I said, think about it. And he said, he wanted to do it. I gave him my card and he said, set it up with the PR people. And I said, okay, would you rather do it at home or on the road? Cause I, in my experience, they would usually rather do it on the road cause they're bored and they have a lot more mm-hmm. time and no family. But in this case, he said a homestand would be easier. Uh, so I was just in touch with the PR staff after that about, what date made the most sense. Then I went down there. Interesting. And, um, okay. So you go down and do you, do you know what you're going to ask him? Do you have, I don't know how you personally do it. Do you have a list of questions? Do you have a tape recorder out when you're in or, you know, a recorder out when you're interviewing him? How do you, how do you sort of approach it? Yeah, I definitely, I record. Um, I was amazed to see Tom Verducci. I guess what he does when he, when he does a longer piece, but when he's in the clubhouse or whatever after a game, he mostly just takes notes because he says it's faster and he's in the process of getting information. He thinks you can get trapped um, listening for the quote rather than seeing the information, which I think is amazing. I just can't write fast enough for that. But mm-hmm. in this case, right. especially, I felt like for somebody who thought that fans didn't understand him, I think it makes him more comfortable to think these quotes are going to be exactly what you said. There will be no oh, question about that. Um, and yeah, we just sat in a room. We did it before clubhouse hours open. I actually, they, they told me to come down on a Monday, which was the first game of a series, which I thought was kind of weird. Usually the first game of a series, they have, you know, those hitter advanced meetings, mm-hmm. whatever. And it's usually a mess, the first game. So I got down there and he, he saw me and he was like, Oh no, is that today? And I said, yeah, but it doesn't have to be. I'm here tomorrow too. And he said, let's do tomorrow. Um, so we ended up meeting at like one o'clock in some VIP room or whatever. And. Camden Yards, uh, and I didn't. Have was he a in list uniform, of, or was he just in? Was he in street? He clothes? was. He was in, sort of in between. He gets there early to work out, so he was in his shorts and t-shirt. Okay. Um, and I didn't have a list of questions, but I had a couple of. I had a notepad with a couple of like keywords in case I lost my place that I I knew I wanted to touch on certain aspects, so I didn't want to walk out of there after an hour and be like, "Actually, do you have a second? I have another question." Right. This is going to sound weird, right? Because I've approached a million athletes over the years, and I feel like, I mean, there's undoubtedly a certain gamesmanship to it all, where um, you want to get them to talk. And it doesn't mean you lie to them, but I mean, I, I've used this as an example on this podcast a million times. When I wanted to interview a very religious J.D. Drew, and it was right after Passion of the Christ came out, I went to see Passion of the Christ the day before I interviewed J.D. Drew, just to have something to discuss with him and kind of be on his terms. Do you have to be empathetic? to Chris Davis and you have to dis- uh, sort of show empathy in order for this interview to work out. 
I think so because I, but I, the story that I wanted to write required that. So I think there are probably some cases in which I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have to be. But in this case, this was the plan from the beginning was this story is about the other side, the, the difficulty of this grind of baseball and what happens when you are a player who sort of came of age in a style of baseball that they're no longer playing. So what's it, what is it like to watch the game pass you by? And I think it would have been hard to go into that feeling anything other than empathy for him. It's really interesting because I um, just had this happen the other day on social media. I forgot who it was, but some, oh, I was one of the kickers and I, uh, it was the Cleveland kicker. And I said, um, can we have a moment of at least having some empathy for this guy? And someone mm-hmm. tweeted out, you know, some fan, I mean, a million of them, but this guy in particular, I'd be happy to have a million people tell me I suck if I'm making a million dollars. Yeah. And I always think easy to say for a guy who's never been in that position, you know, um, and I wonder how, how much pain did he show in the interview? You know, was he trying to conceal it at all? Was he, did you feel like he was completely wide open to you? Um, you know, could you feel it? Yeah. I think that there are, um, there are certainly a lot of disadvantages to being a woman in this industry. And maybe I'm overstating this, but I think that one of the advantages is that we don't have to, at the beginning of this, we don't have to do the thing where we both pretend we're the bigger man. Like there's no, you don't have, he won, I'm not one. So I think that I was, it's a little bit easier for them sometimes with me to be open about having a feeling. And I try to address that too. I said, I mean, I said to him, I try to reframe it as strengths that they're willing to say that. So I actually, there was one point when I asked him, I wanted to ask him if he had cried about it. But instead of saying, have you cried? I said, have you been able to cry? Because I, th- wow. I do think that that's a, and he was totally into that. And he talked about how he started it on his childhood and how he had learned that men don't cry and how that had been a really hard thing for him that as he gets older, he starts to think that maybe that's wrong and that maybe he should be showing feelings. And that actually led to one of the more interesting conversations we have. Um, and I was talking, I was talking to a friend of his, Craig Gentry, about how I could imagine it would be difficult that societies can be so unfair about male friendships, I think, and that sometimes maybe they're not allowed to be as honest with each other when they're struggling. And he said, yeah, that he's totally felt that way. And it's been such a gift for him to watch his friend learn to be more open with him. I just felt like there were a lot. I, I was able, I was lucky to have these conversations with them without having the barrier, that sort of artificial barrier that I think can sometimes be there. So you think if a, if a, if a man is interviewing him there, Oftentimes, he would be less sort of open to showing or expressing his feelings because he would feel like he'd be judged by the other man. I don't know because I've never been one, but I definitely have noticed. Mm-hmm. I hear male reporters talking about people, about players' unwillingness to be, to express a feeling. And I notice it that I have that experience a little bit less often. So it's possible that that's the, that that's the reason for that. See, I think a lot of the things that happens with athletes is um, they get used to the rhythms of the clubhouse and the rhythms of being interviewed, just like most reporters do, especially beat reporters. And it becomes a a cliche sort of way about it that just happens mindlessly. And if you're the beat writer for the Baltimore Orioles and Chris Davis sees you every day, there are certain expectations from both ends. And probably talking about crying isn't one of them. So then when a reporter right. comes along, and she's a young woman and she's open and she's, you know, sort of asking questions that he's not expecting. 
I think it presents the opportunity for a much better or at least more unique story. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I do think, I mean, there are certainly a lot of advantages to being at SI, but one of them that I didn't think about as much until this spring um, is, is the un, the sort of unusualness of our being there. I was talking to, I wrote a story about Clayton Kershaw and when I pitched it to him in a similar way, actually, I was like, don't answer me right now. Think about it for a couple of days. He said, yes, come to my house and let's talk there. And right. I was talking to some of the Dodgers beat guys and they were like, yeah, he'll never talk to us away from the ballpark because he knows we'll just be there again the next day. So we have asked him if we could get time with him, go to lunch, whatever. And he won't do it because he knows he'll see us again the next afternoon. He doesn't have to. Whereas when we sort of jet in from out of town, we get the, that advantage of seeming of it being different. Interesting. I, I, this is, this has entered my head. Do you ever, as a, as a woman, as a young woman, a ball player, I mean, cause I, I come up from the era. I mean, I'm, I got two decades on you in baseball and even though they, it was more enlightened of a world than it had been probably before I came along, certainly uh, there were still a lot of pigs in the game. And I wonder when a guy invites you to his house for an interview and you hear that that's very unusual. Is there any part of you that is suspicious or has an antenna up? Um, no. And maybe, maybe that's not, I mean, I guess <laughs> yeah, it I might depend on the person in this case. I, I mean, I don't know Kershaw well, certainly, but I did not have, I did not feel concerned in any way. Um, it, it doesn't happen that often. I mean, I haven't been to many of these people's houses. Often I will, they'll let me have lunch with them at a restaurant or something, which they wouldn't probably do with a guy they see every day. But, yeah. I definitely am more aware that it could look like I'm asking something different than I'm asking when I try to get someone's phone number, but I've never felt, I've never felt like worried that their intentions were different. I just want to make it clear what my intentions are more than being concerned right. about theirs, I guess. I just want to say the best home visit I ever had while I was at Sports Illustrated is I went to uh, Pudge Rodriguez's house when he was a catcher for the Florida Marlins and he had two amazing things at his house. Number one, he had an enormous statue of himself in the backyard. Sure. And number two, of course he did. And number two, he had all these classic books in his quote unquote library. And when he went to the bathroom, I looked at the books and they were all bindings. And inside the bindings were blank pages. Wow. Which is the best. Those thing are some details. Wow. I know. And I didn't use them in the story because I was an idiot. I don't know why, or I didn't want to embarrass him. I was looking. Wow. But, um, yeah. Anyway, well, you got some um, mileage out of that for the for your stories later on. To tell yeah, people. exactly. It made the podcast, so that's okay. Right. Um, all right. So, 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 you wrote here. You used repeatedly, as I read in the lead. You wrote, um, you know, he sucks, and then the degree which he has sucked this season is almost without precedent. Do you hesitate at all to use the word "suck" to describe him? It's a harsh word. I'm not saying it's a wrong word. It's a harsh word. Is there any hesitation to use that, or you just like, is there a reason for that? I I think the the harshness of it made an impact, which is why I went with it. And that's also part of why when I pitched it to him, I was very clear that this is a story about how you are having a bad season. So I didn't say mm -hmm. to him, hey, Chris, you're on pace to have the worst season of all time. But I didn't want him to be surprised when the story comes out. And it, part of it is about how he's having a bad season. I don't want I didn't want there to be any sense that I had tricked him or convinced him that this was something that it wasn't this is a story about how you are bad and also what comes out of that so the the right. harshness of sucked was was intentional because if the rest of it is supposed to make you sort of understand a little bit more about what that's like 
then this this is the word that he hears. Right. It's really interesting because there have been a ton of Chris Davis stories this year, and there have been a ton of why Chris Davis is terrible stories. But this is the first story I've really read where Chris Davis diagnoses why Chris Davis is terrible, and not just in a paragraph. But the entire story is really, it's almost like a diagnosis of what's going on in his head without any solution. Like, there's no solution here. It's not like at the end, you're like, well, it'll all get better. Like, the conclusion of the story really is he's terrible, he's lost, and in a way, he might never come out of this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... That, that to me is the story that there's not, this isn't yeah. an easy fix. If it were easy, I think he would have done it. This is the story of a guy. I mean, this happens to a lot of people in America these days, right? You think that you, this happens to people in journalism. You think that you are doing the same thing you have been doing. And so it should continue to work. And the game has changed. And suddenly you're not providing the value you thought you were providing. And you don't know what to do. You don't, you don't not want to change. You just don't know what to do because the thing you did was working and then it wasn't. Right. See, I think what's more terrifying about Chris Davis isn't about the game changing and you not adapting. It's a used to do this thing really well. And one day you stop doing it really well. Like, yeah, I'm, it's kind of, it's kind of terrifying. If you, if you actually let that get in your head, you know, like one day I just can't write books anymore. Like I just lose the ability to write books and I hand in stuff and they say, no, this is terrible. We can't run it. And then I hand in another one. And they say, no, we can't use that either. Or you're writing stories for SI and one day they just keep rejecting your stories. That is literally what this guy is going through. Pure rejection. It's crazy. Yeah. I didn't use the word because it, for baseball players, it is so, it's imbued with so much meaning, but it's, in some ways, I think he has the yips of hitting that he looks out there and he's like, oh God, what now? In a way that, you know, John Lester feels when he sees a runner take off from first base that it's not like you can't physically, you should be able to do this. And yet you can't. Yeah. Um, you have a part of this piece that I really like. You wrote, in late August, as Ella watched Peppa Pig and his eight-month, eight-month-old twins napped, Chris slumped over the kitchen table, pleading with Jill, a registered nurse, to diagnose whatever moral disease had brought him here. Am I blind to something that I'm habitually doing, he asked, leaning on his faith? Do you see anything in me that needs to be brought to the light? You're right where God needs you to be, she assured him. Your words carry a lot of weight in the clubhouse and the community. I just don't understand, he said, his words muffled through his hands as tears rolled down his cheeks. How can I go out there every single day and just not succeed? It's baffling to me. Um, so how do you get those details and how comfortable are you? I'm very comfortable with it. So it's not a criticism of sort of someone telling you a conversation that you weren't there for and kind of using it as a conversation. Um, especially in this case, I was pretty comfortable because he, as you know, there are some people who just don't think in anecdotes and you'll never get one out of them, but he was a guy Mm -hmm. who really does. I mean, he had a ton of examples like that. The kicker, he just gave, you know, he kept he kept having these moments that he knew were meaningful and that he gave me in their entirety. And then for that one, um, I called his wife as well. And I asked her to take me through that moment and their memories matched up. And those were the only people who were there. So I figured that was, that was good enough for me. Um, yeah. And I, with that, that was when I asked him, I believe that's when I asked him if he'd been able to cry this season. And he said, yeah, actually two nights ago or three nights ago or whatever, I broke down at the kitchen table and I said, Oh, tell me more about that. And we were off. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, um, like you wrote in late August, as Ella watched Peppa Pig. Like you could have just said as Ella watched TV or as Ella was in the living room or you didn't have to mention Ella. Do you ask, what was she watching? Yeah, he said the kids were, the twins were asleep and Ella was, I think he said Ella was watching TV. And I said, what was she watching? Um, I I know you're a big Lee Jenkins reader as well, but he is like the king of the, of one more detail than you would think to get. And so I miss a ton of them, but I try to get. 
I remember there was one story, I think it was about the Rockets. He wrote, I think it was about Harden. He wrote something about put through Meek Mill on the pill. And I thought, my God, not only did he ask them what the music was, but he asked what the stereo system was. And so I try to think yeah, about that great. all the time. Is there any opportunity to be more specific here? Because like every parent with my kids number one, has probably watched Peppa Pig. I always tell, I always tell my, uh, I teach adjunct and I always tell them it's not mm. just a can of soda. It's a diet right. Pepsi. Right. It's half empty. It's, you know, there's, there's some liquid on the lid, you know, any mm-hmm. detail. So that's, that's a great Peppa Pig is a great detail. Before we continue with two writers singing, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son, Emmett, who just loves talking about the USFL. Dad, I hate talking about the USFL. What? You've been promoting your book for months. Can we just move on? Herschel Walker. Stop. Doug Williams. Dad, stop. Ugh, fine. But what if I told you 503 Sports, a sponsor of this podcast, sells throwback gear from the World Football League, the Canadian Football League, the XFL, minor league baseball, and hockey. That way we don't have to talk about the USFL for a while. I guess that's better. Great. But before we do, I have one last story about the Pittsburgh Maulers. Go away. Hmm. Just so you know, 503 Sports is amazing. The merchandise is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Emmett Perlman. Do what you got to do, but visit 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 for 10% off your first purchase. You have, you have a moment here that I love because I went through it about a million times when I was covering baseball at SI, which is, in fact, I actually went through it with Buck Schalter, which is funny. Buck Schalter <laughs> has a question. Moments ago, he was jovially kicking around stories about Ken Griffey Jr. during a recent pregame press conference. But now, standing outside the dugout during batting practice, he's scowling. Is this going to be a bad Barry Chris thing, he demands? Because I don't want to be a part of that. So I'm assuming that's you asking Buck Showalter uh, before the game to talk about Chris Davis, correct? Yeah. Hey, hey, Buck, do you have a second? I'm writing a story about Chris. And then. So is he surrounded by the other writers when you do it? Is he doing his pregame uh, no, thing, he had done you know? his pregame thing. And I, since the PR staff knew I was working on this, I said, I want a couple of minutes with Buck and I don't want them to be because this is such a personal, meaningful thing. I don't want to do this in a press conference. And they said, OK, OK. Um, and I know Buck a little, certainly not well, but he remembers me a little bit. So when I went over there, he was like, oh, yes, you actually at that moment, I got lucky because Davis was standing in the dugout. And this was so this was the Monday when I had intended to talk to Davis. but We moved it to Tuesday. So I was trying to get everyone else first and then get Davis Tuesday. So that moment, um, Buck, before he came over to me, Buck went over to Chris and he said something. They, they had an exchange that I couldn't hear. And then he came back and then he said, is this going to be Barry Chris? And the next day I said to Chris, did Buck ask you for your permission? And he said, yes. And I said, what did you tell him? And he said, she seems like she has a good heart. You can tell her whatever you want. That's cool. So that was nice. Yeah. Now, do you live in, like, let's say Chris Davis hated this story. Let's say Chris Davis was like, I can't believe you fucking wrote that story. And you said, I sucked. Are you fucking kidding me? What the fuck kind of bullshit is that? That just felt fun to say. But like, I've had phone calls like that from writer, from athletes. I thought blank. You know, I thought you were going to do blank. I, you know, um, cause you can't write this story as an ode to Chris Davis. And you don't want, you know, like I always thought it was never, I think Gary Smith or someone says never, you don't want him to love it or hate it. You know, you don't want Chris Davis to love it, to think it's a love letter, and you don't want to think you're going out of your way to kill him. Do you think about what he'll think of the story when you're writing the story at all? I try not to think about it while I'm writing it. I try to think it, I try to read it once as him afterward. And right. then I try to decide how many of the things I think he might be concerned about might be valid and whether I care about, like, if it, 
like it would be fair of him to take issue with the word suck but that one doesn't bother me i mean i definitely live in fear that people won't like what i did but i try to think about there's sort of two pulls here i mean there's that journalism is writing what someone doesn't want written everything else is pr i don't know if i go that far but do you really want i don't know that we want them to love it right isn't that what the team magazine does so Uh the ideal is probably for jill to read it and think that seems fair and chris not to read it but uh and to tell him that it was fine but i think i that's why i tried to be really clear and i tried to ask a lot of questions about the ways in which he is struggling because I just didn't want any of it to surprise him. And if he, there, I'm sure there are going to be parts of it that he's not crazy about, but I hope that he will come out of that thinking, yeah, that's about right. And that would be good enough for me. Have you had a, uh, have you had an experience yet where an athlete absolutely hates what you write and lets you know, no, no uncertain terms that he or she hates it? No. And I think part of that is because I was never a beat writer. So I haven't right. been tasked as often with ripping people and i'm also i mean it's sort of a luxury to be able to say this but i'm also not that interested in ripping people unless i think they really deserve it and i have a pretty high threshold for that so i haven't right i had one time a player's mom didn't like how i had characterized son's relationship with a coach but i and i was upset about that but then i thought about it and i decided that i had done the right thing and so i tried to move right. on from that right you'll get your shot don't worry oh i'm sure <laughs> one day I'm someone sure will call you. Yeah, because it's not really about being a columnist or, or it's not really about opinions it's, it's more about athletes seeing themselves one way and you seeing them a different way sure that's and point. them not being happy with you know what i mean like that's right. the biggie right i guess and i mean just, the obvious yeah. blows where you say this guy is terrible yeah. i haven't written right. that many of but yeah i'm sure and i'm sure that there have been things that people have taken issue with in stories they just don't mention them to me I'm going to tell you my favorite line in your story. The final paragraph, I'm just going to read this real quick. Uh, it began to rain, big fat drops splashing audibly on the grass and, and the dirt and Davis's head. Still, he sat there contemplating his future. Fans streamed out of the ballpark, jostling for cover. Suddenly, he heard a voice behind him. Keep your head up, Chris, a middle-aged man in an Oriole shirt yelled. You got the greatest job in the world. Davis cocked his head. He's right, he thought. He stood up and walked to the clubhouse. Unfortunately, the sun eventually came out again. That's a great last line. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah, I can't take full credit for that. I had something worse, and I sent it to uh, SI senior writer Michael Rosenberg, and he said, "This is like I'm, I'm not sure you're hitting the right note here. I think you want to make the point that he that it doesn't get better." And so we worked on it and came up with that. First of all, that's beautiful because he's a great he's a great writer. Oh man, and, a great, and he's know, got so great many editor. of those perfect lines. Yeah, that is a great. Unfortunately, the sun of entry came out again. Is a great line. Who? Whatever. How? How did you have it? Uh, ending uh i had a longer the this story had to come out come down not dramatically but it had to come down like 500 words maybe for the magazine because after the yep. uh serena women's open thing um everybody lost a couple pages but yeah so the the online version is a little bit longer and i had a little bit more in there earlier there was some line about doing it again and again have it like beating your head against the wall and then going back and doing it again and so it ended with that that then he you know he walked to the clubhouse and he got got up the next morning and did it again and he he felt like that ended a little flat that that wasn't really the point of the story it was that he did it again and then he, but he kept failing like it never got better so it's a smart idea just the very idea that you're actually you would be in a way rooting for a rain delay right and damn it now i have to play and go over four again yeah it's good 
I don't know. Did did you know this was a good story? Like you wrote it. Did you know? Are you like, ah, that is a good story right there. Do you feel that way when you're done with a piece? Uh, no, never. I. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, uh, I, Me neither. So yeah, yeah go ahead. I felt better about it. It's funny. I, I tend to know more whether I liked it or not once the edits come in. And if I, I know how, how much I liked it based on how bad I feel about the words that they try to, to take away from me. Um, and in this case, the cut made me sad. And so I realized that I must have liked it a little bit. Um, but in this case, I just felt like there was such, he was, he gave me such good material that as long as I mostly stay out of the way, there was going to be interesting information in it. Do you still, again, you started SI, you were an intern there mm -hmm. first, right? Yes. 11? Yes. 2011? Yeah. Yeah. Tr Trinity College. You got it. Wow. That row, those rowing pages really have a lot of information. Huh? No, I found your uh, LinkedIn page. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah. Um, all right. So you came along seven or eight years after I left the magazine. Mm -hmm. And when I came up at SI, it was all about your byline, getting your byline in print, literally seeing your byline in print was the thrill and the buzz. And I wonder, does that still, does it still do it for you? Um, or does it do it for you? Seeing your byline in print doesn't matter print versus online. Does one give you a greater buzz than the other? It does not matter. Yeah, we will probably all say it doesn't, but it does a little bit. There's something about holding it in your hand. Um, and I think there, at one point, we were going to lose so much space that this was going to have to be cut to like 800 words and be the scorecard essay was going to be the only option. And hey. for that, I said, let's not do it. I would rather it run online whole and not ever right. be in the magazine. So I guess at some point there is a line at which I would rather it not run in print. But the cut that we ended up having to do, that was that did not reach the line. Do you still get the, I mean, do you, will you read the magazine in print every time it comes out? I was going to say every week. Unfortunately, it's not every week. Right. But do you, do you still pick up the issue? Do you still read it? Are you a cover to cover reader of a magazine? Like, do you, again, you came up in a, the, the generation after mine journalistically. And I wonder if you still approach, like to me, I got SI cover to cover. I was reading everything. Does that still exist? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't read it in one sitting and there are things that I come back to, but I, I start with, I basically do it by the byline, not the subject. So I start with whoever I wanted right. to read, the big features, whatever. And then a couple days later, I come back to it and I go through scorecard, which is kind of the opposite of the point because scorecard is the news part, but whatever. At that point, I already know what happened. Right. Um, and yeah, yeah, I make it through pretty much the whole thing every time. Steve Cannell and I used to cover baseball together. Mm -hmm. Verducci, just like now, Verducci was the king. Right. And we got the scraps. Yeah. So um, I would always get the scraps and, and that was great. And why, just like you described watching Tom in a clubhouse, I've talked about it a million times. I would watch Tom work at clubhouse and be like, man, I can't be like that. Oh God, like, that's he's ridiculous. just a he's magician. Just, and then you see he, the words. He glides. I asked him I know. after I know. Uh, in the World Series in 2016, we were covering it together and we wrote, I mean, if you say, I wouldn't say the same story because like Ansel Adams and I didn't take the same photograph, but we had the same approach mm -hmm. at one point. And I, the next day I was like, you have to sit down with me and explain. You and I theoretically had access to the same information. How is it that your story is so much better than mine? And he walked me through. But it's incredible to see him do it and then to read the result the next day. It's actually fascinating. He's had a million of us, meaning yeah, right. there have been a million people who have done baseball with him. Right. I remember when I was covering baseball. I mean, if I were in his shoes, I would be like, uh, another one. Mm -hmm. Like, here's another one. Right. Here's the 30th. Oh, Stephanie now, right. number 31 of. Number two baseball writers at SI. Right. Do you feel like you've learned from watching him? Oh, Maybe yeah, up anything? for sure. I mean, some of these are sound so obvious when I say them, but I think being younger and not really feeling that comfortable in the clubhouse, it took me some time to learn some things that in retrospect seem obvious. 
I watched him talk to, I think it was Rusty Kuntz in the, yeah, in the 2015 World Series. He said, I don't even remember what the question was, but he asked him something. And Rusty was like, oh, no, we didn't have scouting on that. And he was like, Rusty, give me a break. Of course you did. This is like, let me tell you what I saw. And Rusty was like, laughed and said, you're totally right. And gave him this incredible answer. And I was like, oh, sometimes you argue with the guy. Sometimes you know you're right. And you even in a, this was not an adversarial thing. He wasn't trying to, you know, get to the bottom of he's not covering the White House here. But he was like, no, I know that you had data on Eric Hosmer or whatever it was. And sorry, Eric Hosmer was on their team, whatever. On Duda, I think was the was the play. Yeah. And so to watch him have that sort of banter that turned into really good information was interesting. I mean, the way he just watching him, and fact checking for him for so long was incredible because you get to see what he turns in and then you get to call and kind of re-report the story so do you think you can be as good as verduti one day i do not <laughs> but i think you got to keep trying right who are the writers who are the writers you sort of read and and kind of i don't know aspire to follow their careers oh man well i mean a shout out here to the recently departed lee jenkins oh man yeah which is i'm sure a great decision for him but definitely sad for uh the industry Yes. Michael Rosenberg, I already mentioned of Verducci, certainly. Um, yeah. Greg Bishop. I, I mean, not to just name SI people, but I do actually think that we have some of the best people in the business. Um, I read more baseball than anything else. So Dave Scheinan, uh, at the post and Jeff Passan at Yahoo and Tim Brown at Yahoo. Right. Uh, Andy McCullough, I think is the best beat writer in the country. So when I was writing at SI, you showed up and you were granted an audience. You know, I wanted to talk to Gary Sheffield. I call the Dodgers. They know SI is coming. It doesn't matter if I know Sheffield or not. He's talking. You know, Mark McGuire, mm-hmm. Sosa, whoever. You were at SI. You got an audience. It's a totally different world now. Uh, it's a digital world. It's a world where most of these guys never pick up print. Uh, you walk into a clubhouse or on their phones. If they're reading, they're reading on their phones or a tablet. Do you still feel like SI, when you walk into a clubhouse, carries some heft? Yeah, I'm sure it's less than it was in your day. but. I definitely do feel that there have been times. I mean, when I've even been told that I wrote about Aaron judge last year and uh, we actually happened to be right on time. It was just as he was getting to become who he is now. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to his agent and he said, you know, we've gotten some requests, but it's SI like we've turned down some stuff, but it's SI. Oh, that's cool. So that one, that one mattered. I'm, I'm sure there are other times. I think it's probably somewhat generational. I mean, judge maybe around the line. Like I, wrote about Justin Turner, and I know that that meant a lot to him. He's a little bit older than I am, and I know he had those covers on his wall as a kid. I know being on the cover was a really big deal to him. So it's possible that the 18-year-olds are going to care less, but at the moment, at least the the guys I'm more often dealing with, I think, do still care. And does a cover story, so for us, when I was coming up, and the whole time I was there, the cover story, I mean, I remember vividly my first cover story and the thrill of having a piece on the cover of SI. Does the cover story, is the goal of a cover still something? Yeah, I think so. And I think they know it too. I mean, my first, Aaron Judge was my first cover story and Chris Stone, the boss of the magazine walked over, had, they had a big printout for me and congratulated me. I mean, they know it means, they know when it's your first, they know it means something. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, listen, you're, uh, again, I read, I pick up Sports Illustrated, I get, or it comes in the mailbox, I look at it, I see Verducci on the cover. I see Chris Davis and I think, oh, I wrote about Chris Davis. And I just thought your story really freaking jumped out of the, out of the magazine. And, uh, 
It's great. It's great stuff. I hope you feel as good about it as, as I oddly do. And, and, well, and thank I'm, you. That's really nice of you to say. Thank you for doing my podcast. You're officially, uh, yeah, of course. You've officially big, been big fan of two writers sling and yang. I want to thank today's guest, Stephanie Epstein, for joining me on two writers sling and yang. You can follow Stephanie on Twitter at Steph Epstein and read her stuff in Sports Illustrated and at SI.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. My new book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazy Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. One can listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on Apple Music and Google Play, and reviews are truly appreciated. Music by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.